0: 29 in which Frater Mercurius and I will interview Kess Fry. But first, transformations. transformations and Footnotes. Transformations and Footnotes is the segment in which I recite um, Transformations It's divided into chapters and verses. Of course, this was my dad's book that he uh, wrote in 1976, but never published it. Uh, So I published it a few years ago. And this is a picture I took when I was in the Himalayas uh, a few years before that. Today, I will be reciting chapter 7, verses
1: 5
0: through 7. The jarring. Jar, sorry. Verse 5. I'll admit it, it used to be very frustrating, and I'd act out the frustration. I'd come on and scare them, I'd wag at them, I'd shoot wake up colors at their eggs. Occasionally it worked. Not very often. Too often, they'd go counterphobic and call me crazy. I was smart enough to stay on this side of the line which borders impolitic behavior from the politic, so they just found reasons to leave me alone and cancel my minor votes, not my major votes. Verse 6. I do it differently now. I used to make wrong on them for being unconscious. That is, their unconsciousness of what I thought they should be aware was very much not okay with me. That made things worse. Verse 7. I got to look at my own unconsciousness of the ramifications around being on a make-right on myself and a make-wrong on them. I was resisting them being where they were, and they stayed there. It was, and is, if you're there. Sort of like being stuck in one of those little finger puzzles you used to be able to get in border town shops or in Chinatown curio shops, wherever. The harder you pull trying to get out, the more stuck you get. Lighten up and it flows. You can get unstuck. No footnotes for today. <clears throat> Thank you, Data, for the uh, the clip. Those watching the uh, YouTube video. Um, for those listening only on the audio-only podcast, hello. Um, yes, if you can't see me, I'm wearing my regalia uh, with an, a statue of Amitabha Buddha here. Now, uh, <laughs> I titled this episode Hindu. Rosicrucians. And I admit it was a little bit clickbaity, but not entirely. Um, what we're discussing today, and probably for the next few episodes, is the question of can a person of Hindu or Buddhist faith become a Rosicrucian, specifically in the context of the R AC, without the copyright, of the, uh, of the Golden Dawn, without the copyright, or with it. <laughs> anyway, um, so this was something that Frater Mercurio uh, was discussing with his teacher, uh, my former teacher, and they thought that they should ask me about it you know, for obvious reasons, and I thought that we should ask Kes about it for reasons which are obvious to me, Uh, those being that um, he has been on a Buddhist path and working with a mm, Golden Dawn paradigm-ish for many years, um, since 1966, when my dad introduced him to Golden Dawn paradigm and he uh, introduced my dad to Vajrayana Buddhism, at least that's how Kes tells the story, Um, and, uh, so yeah, so that's what we did. Um, we interviewed Kess, Mercurio and I interviewed Kess today, um, with that being the general focus of the conversation. Now, my internet connection wasn't so good at the beginning, so, uh, Mercurio and I spoke for about 25, 30 minutes in the beginning, but it was just so bad, <clears throat> the uh, cutting in and out, that I knew that 99% of people would tune out, you know, after the first few minutes of trying to make out what it was that I was saying. You could hear him perfectly well, but not so much me. So uh, so you'll hear that introduction for like a minute or less. So just, you know, bear through that minute and then it'll it'll get to a conversation between Kess and uh, John. And um, then after about ten minutes, I went outside and I worked. I, I turned the phone off and on again, and uh, and then started working. There's no Wi-Fi here in uh, Majorda South Goa. It's a village. No Wi-Fi anywhere in the anywhere nearby. So so yeah. So I'm relying on my 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 phone data. Uh, but yeah. So enough about that. Uh, without further ado, let's get to that interview, shall we? brother how are you yes, brother yeah you? very well thanks how are you good to I'm see good. you i'm good i'm good good to see you
2: yeah it's been a little while i yeah. guess it's
0: been uh september we did uh episode 120
2: yes that was cool
0: <laughs> yeah oh that was almost a year ago holy crap
2: I know. time, time, time starts
0: going faster the older you get <laughs> tell me about it yeah we're in a village in uh, in South Goa, so there's no Wi-Fi in the whole city.
2: <laughs> oh, really? Goodness. Yeah, a, it's going in and out, you know, kind of thing, so to speak. <laughs>
0: Giggity. Okay, there he is. There he is. Hi. Hello. Hello. Good to see you.
2: Yeah, we were just sort of discussing and looking through the the idea of whether um, Rosicrucianism is compatible with buddhism and hinduism and how that might look really in different ways so um exploring some of the history and also looking at uh you know if if, um someone who's buddhist or is from a hindu background joins a rosicrucian group would they would that work you know i guess in summary there's a lot more to it as well, but that was the kind of idea.
1: Yeah, well, I I would think that it could work. Yeah. Uh, you know, my, my concept of Rosicrucianism is based on Paul Foster Case's book, The True and Invisible Rosicrucian Order. Oh, yeah. To the Invisible Rosicrucian Order, something like that. Mm. There's different Rosicrucian groups. right know right. that claim to be the authentic, you know, <laughs> right. to the real lineage group. Yeah. So there's been some disagreement or controversy in that area.
2: Right. Yeah, absolutely. I think Amorc think that they're the the main ones, don't they? But um whether they are, I don't know.
1: Well, the builders of the Auditum is a group that Paul Foster Case founded. Yeah, I think in the 1920s in Los Angeles, and he was he was guided by one of the uh, inner school masters, who's in a physical body, mm. to do this, because he'd been involved with the Golden Dawn, and there was kind of a schism, and he wasn't sure for mm. a way to go. Mm. There was a good biography of Paul Foster case written by a man named Paul Clark the, mm. through which I learned a little more about him.
2: All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Do you know if any of and their he, members were, were from different
1: with a Swami from India, from a Hindu background. There was a book called the Kabalyan that they did along with somebody else. You might've heard of that book.
2: I've read that one, yeah.
1: Oh yeah. So I think that might even be an example of the compatibility between Mm. Hinduism and Rosicrucianism.
2: That's a really good point, actually. I hadn't thought of that, yeah. Yeah, the Kabalyan, absolutely. Wow yeah and I know that Westcott in in the Golden Dawn had connections with the Theosophical Society who made also made that bridge into um you know the more eastern systems so um oh yeah big time (laughs) yeah so he he apparently had met some of these uh, eastern masters who manifested around Madame Blavatsky at times So I heard or read somewhere. So, um, yeah, it's probably very possible.
1: There's also the Alice Bailey work. Mm. Uh, There's a whole series of books that were written through her by, by one of the, allegedly by one of the masters, you know, the hierarchy. Right. And one of them had actually manifested physically to her in a room. Wow. Uh, she was involved with the Theosophical Society. And then there was kind of a schism in that group, too.
2: Oh, that's right. Yeah.
1: A little over 100 years ago. And she was in a quandary. <laughs> Probably around the same time Paul Case was. And I think the yeah. two of them may even had contact with each other. But this uh, t- master, they called him the Tibetan, his name was Dwal Ku. He oh, yeah. would stand behind her and dictate the text of the books to her. And then there were a few that she wrote on her own. One which I found very helpful was called Initiation, Human and Solar. Mm.
2: Oh, wow, interesting. Initiation of the human soul. I'm just
1: making it. It's called initiation uh, colon human and solar. Ah. Okay. So it talks about these different grades of initiation uh, you know, going beyond being Incarnated as a physical human being. hmm
2: Well, that makes sense. That does make sense, yeah.
1: Yeah, now, I've come to the opinion looking at the at the Kabbalistic tree of life as a model that mm. once the soul migrates up through the different sephira, you know, there's a there's a miniature tree of life in each sephira. Right. So each sphere, the tree of life has to be gone through and climbed, and unfortunately, some people get too high in an opinion of themselves, thinking they reached right. the pinnacle when they may still be in the personality astral triad mm-hmm. or the spiritual moral triad. Right. But uh, anyway, yeah. I, I'm of the the opinion that. The mercy sphere is the highest sphere that an individual consciousness may evolve into. Right. And then beyond that, uh, the abyss has to be crossed, you know, from uh, Chesed to Kabina, Mm. or mercy to understanding. Yeah. And then the individual consciousness evolves into a universal consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that the the grades of initiation in the supernal triad are grades of universal consciousness that we right. can scarcely conceive of or imagine. Yeah. From a human point of view of an individual, limited in human consciousness.
2: Right. So while we're in the body, we'll never really reach that state, truly.
1: I, uh, well, I, not unless we get to a very high state and choose to make the sacrifice of coming back to one of these bodies. Right. Out of compassion, you know, for those still struggling in this. Mm. this world of confusion and yeah. veil of tears or you know whatever
2: <laughs> absolutely yeah but well,
1: one that thing I quote, reason to come back would be out of love yeah. and compassion for the other parts yeah. of our universal self that are still evolving mm. and need help
2: <laughs> right yeah yeah it makes sense so that does connect quite closely with um, some of the Buddhist concepts of a Bodhisattva returning to the world. Exactly, I guess, and yeah.
1: I don't think there's any difference at all.
2: Right. Yeah, because in yeah. in um, in Kabbalah they have the a, a similar concept, don't they, of metempsychosis? People returning back into the world. Um, teachers coming back to help the world to develop and so on. It's also in Kabbalah. Yeah, well, you
1: the on of. Arcanum number nine, the hermit on the tarot cards. Mm. Uh, in Paul Case's you know, version of the Tree of Life, the hermit is between the mercy sphere and mm. the beauty sphere, Tipperary.
2: Right. Pulling yeah. up the
1: lantern from the top of the mountain to guide mm. souls that need help to come up to a higher degree. Of consciousness and initiation. Yeah. where well, it's I think it's mm. exactly the same thing. It's just put in terms of different symbols and terminologies. Right. Yeah,
2: we would we were saying just before you joined that maybe it's around transcending all of the the outer expressions of it and um seeing it as as you say, like stages of initiation or um ways that it doesn't really matter which religion you're from, there are still definable stages that you can go through.
1: Absolutely. I mean any any bona fide spiritual path or religion is going to bring people into this through their particular system of symbols and practices and so forth. Mm yeah that's what their job is anyway so if they're doing their job that's what they will do unfortunately a lot of organized religion is not doing its job right in terms of this
2: yeah it's lost its sort of more mystical side hasn't it in many ways
1: yes exactly yeah
2: i think that's what rosicrucianism is trying to replace in Christianity at least I mean maybe for other things is to try and you know have that mystical side I don't know if it's doing it right but I, I suspect that's the goal of it
1: well it's yeah it should be mm. it absolutely is I mean in terms of the what Case yeah. referred to as the true and invisible Rosicrucian order mm. the inner school that's what it's doing and Right. It wants to work through human instruments in order to, to implement the divine plan. Yeah.
2: yeah so absolutely.
1: that's what our job as incarnate human beings is to whatever mm-hmm. degree we can to assist in this work.
2: Yeah.
1: And in the yeah. process, we will evolve and we will be encouraging and hopefully helping others mm-hmm. to do the same.
2: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: Something in Buddhism that I have found very useful to reflect upon lately is a statement from one of my teachers, Lama Anagarika Govinda, Mm. who was uh, originally born in Germany. And he said, uh, "You know, according to the real Buddhist teachings, there are no absolute individuals."
2: Oh, that's interesting. What did they mean by that? Ah, I think Edward has that.
0: Yeah, that's one of his books. Yeah.
1: <laughs> the Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. It's a great book. Right. Uh, well, the ego, of the false self, assumes itself to be absolutely separate and absolutely an individual. Yeah, and that's the fundamental illusion. It's the root. I thought you know the Ramana Maharshi talked about. Mm. He was a great, a great Indian sage who died around 1950. And I guess you could kind of connect him to the Hindu mm. tradition. But he taught that the root I thought was the source of all of our maya, our ignorance. Right.
2: Mm.
1: So the illusion that we are absolute individuals, that's what keeps us stuck and trapped. Mm -hmm. Being attached to that as our true and ultimate identity. It's a complete fiction. Mama Govinda referred to the the ego as a factual illusion. <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, it makes sense, and that seems to be what the Western world is about too. It's
1: oh, fun. absolutely. I and very
0: much a bridge is. connecting uh, the 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 animal nature, which is, you know, tied up in the body with the spiritual nature, which is more anchored in the supernals. So, you know, the, the idea of Yeshua as 100% man and 100% God is really a mirror to us, showing us who we really are. That uh, they, So this ego floating in the middle, like you said, a factual illusion, um, to facilitate this paradox between a mortal beast, you know, not a beast like Revelation, but like a beast like an animal, you know, um, and and an eternal, immortal, uh, n- non-corporeal, you know, uh, uh, being... So, yeah, for practical purposes, I'm Edward, uh because you know we need to know whose bank account this is or or who who's talking or whose phone number this is um, but yeah people people become anchored to that rather than than the the real reality that's underneath, and it's so fragile and membranous, like a bubble ready to pop. This Edward, you know, that that it seems very dire, very urgent, very frightening. Uh, the idea of preserving the bubble and asking questions like, does the bubble have an afterlife? And uh, you know, will the bubble like the, the pharaohs wanting to still be walking around in their golden slippers, uh, you know, after right. after they die. So going going to great lengths building pyramids and everything to try to ensure that they're still going to be walking around with a hat on, you know, um, after they die. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, well, that's, that's all part of the Maya.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
1: the, the problem is we, we have been trained and by our culture to over identify with our ego, Mm. and not to identify with our spiritual nature, mm. or higher self, you know, Buddha, mm. Buddha nature, Atman, you know, whatever we want to call that, that divine part of us that is the deepest core mm. of who we truly are.
0: Yeah, yeah. Mm. Even the so- statement, I am Hindu, or I am Christian, has has this misappropriation of the divine name I am at its root. <laughs>
1: yeah, <absolutely. laughs> right, <Exactly. laughs>
0: Yeah. And it misses you know, the whole thing.
1: That, it needs to be relativized. Right. Uh, our, our individuality needs to be relativized because in our deeper core, we are a part of a oneness that's non-dual. And uh, it's yeah. universal.
2: Yeah.
1: And we're all part of the same thing on that deeper level. And if we could just realize that, then there would be world peace and cooperation because yeah. everyone would realize that whatever you do to anyone else, you're doing to yourself on that right. deeper level.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Course, yeah. I. I Oh, I was just going to say. Yeah, you're calling back to what you were you had said earlier that, especially in present, what you might call present day Western uh, society, it's all focused on the on individualism as opposed to collectivism. Like these are the choices. Uh, So, so spirit is like kind of either been institutionalized into a an organized religion or uh shrugged off as imaginary um except for you know uh, in cases where it's not you know like like this conversation we're having uh thinking of it in a in a in a broader term obviously we're correct and everybody else is wrong is what I'm saying you know <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, I interrupted you, though.
1: Well, I was just going to say this underlying unity, the glue of which is divine love, it's non-dual, is the foundation of the law of karma or the law of return. You know, what we do comes back to us. Mm-hmm. And the purpose of that law is to teach us if we can't learn any other way by reaping the fruits of what we do. Mm. And thought, feeling, intention, and action, and so forth.
2: Yeah. Right. And that's what pulls us back into incarnation each time, I guess, is when that's...
1: Yeah, I think that's one of the things but. Two other possibilities are we come back because we need the human body in order to continue growing and evolving. Until Mm -hmm. we outgrow the need of human incarnation for our own spiritual education, uh, we need to come back. And then even after that, in terms of the, the higher Bodhisattva ideal, we may choose to come back to be of service to others.
2: Right. Yes. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And of course, That's we cool. can still be the service to others while we ourselves, like me, for example, are still evolving and working out our karma mm. from our past mm. mistakes or whatever. Yeah. It's a wonderful adventure, and my vision is that the universal divine consciousness is living all of our lives with us and experiencing everything we're experiencing. That's one of the reasons why God chose to create, to find out what it would be like not to be God. <laughs> well, I guess that,
2: that goes along with the Tsim Tsum idea, doesn't it? You know, the in Kabbalah, where God created a space so he could experience himself. Yes kind of mirror yeah
1: experiencing himself through limitations mm, mm.
2: and millions and millions of of these imitations: and...
1: yeah, so each one of us is like the protagonist in our own personal version of the divine drama
0: right <laughs> you know,
1: God incarnate.
0: There was something interesting that just happened where I think that Kess was saying experience himself through limitation, and then John said millions of imitations, and that Um, made me realize the similarity between these words, (laughs) limitation and imitation, Mm -hmm. that's something I'm going to be thinking about for the rest of my life.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's deep. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, imitations do limit us, perhaps.
0: I went outside and turned my uh, my data connection off and on again, which is as we anybody who's seen IT crowd knows that's the uh, the universal solution to all problems uh, with with devices, and it seems to be a little better now.
1: Oh yeah, yeah it does. Really clear. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, and visually, you're you're real
2: clear. Yeah. yeah I definitely. think there's
0: a a one second delay, but it's okay. <laughs> so uh, John is in Australia, and uh, Kess is in Alaska, and right. I'm in India. So we're we're either making a long line across the world or or a little i don't know what sigil that is from india to australia to alaska but it's something
2: <laughs> that's pretty amazing
0: wow yeah modern technology right
2: i <laughs> the time zones yeah how did we get that to work <laughs>
0: yeah <laughs> all hmm. part of the whole illusion I there guess. was a a fratter i'll um i don't know if I should say his name if you if you're watching hey brother, uh, I hope that you consider my invitation to come on here. I'd like to do that one day. You can wear a mask anyway um i had i there was one fratter that was complaining that in the golden dawn that the the hindu uh paradigm seemed to be naturally assumed to be the correct one. So he was coming from a, from a position of being Catholic, believing in the sacraments and heaven and hell. And uh, and he didn't like that the Golden Dawn was so Hindu. So it's interesting. It's, a, it's interesting that here we are having the question is, is it compatible with Hinduism? <laughs> when he's saying is it compatible with christianity <laughs> how interesting wow yeah yeah
2: we, we've also had a, a muslim a couple of muslim
0: uh brothers haven't we and we, we have
2: we um back be,
0: then uh, the, yeah there was a there was a personal issue between the head of the order and uh and yeah. the, the the person who I interviewed in episode ten of Esoteric Nerd, innovate <laughs> right. um, yeah. a very personal issue, as wow. personal as it gets. Think like wow. high school drama. But anyway, so oh, so I that, I that I know that 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 resulted in um, I think that at that for for a number of years or or maybe even decades, the the Golden Dawn we came from. Moving away from the idea that there was any possibility for compatibility between uh, between our tradition and and an Islamic one, uh, but then I think the pendulum has swung the other way. I, I I think I was there for the beginning of the pendulum swinging the other way when uh, when we went and saw the Dalai Lama and uh, things things became a lot. More loose, in one sense. In one sense, um, but uh, but yeah. Anyway, aside from aside from those things, I I, I wasn't making a point. I was just talking. Sorry. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that must have been so interesting to to hear the Dalai Lama live.
0: Oh yeah, um, yeah. I think the thing the thing that I took away, the thing that stuck in my mind, was when he said he's not attached. To Buddhism, mm. that uh, yeah, the Buddhist philosophy teaches uh, it's a philosophy of non-attachment, which also means you shouldn't be attached to Buddhism. That makes okay. sense. that's interesting. I mean, especially yeah, it makes sense in terms of the path, in terms of uh, if it's going to be something that inhibits your progress toward enlightenment, mm. that you know, if you're, if you're almost there, but then there's this whole thing of someone saying, someone in the distance saying, Buddhism is stupid and you say, "Hey," you know, then the ego, ego identification slams together, but in the name of the path that you're on, then it's like even more insidious. Like when someone has a, someone has a, uh, an ego that is taking the form of a spiritual guru or, you know, uh you know a master or something
2: um there's a there's there's (laughs) a zen actually there's a zen story that covers that which is and i forget the details but it might be dojen or someone who it was one of the masters who had trained up a a student to be the next master and when the student got to be the master oh yeah that's right the the original master had this very precious book of teachings that he had he built up over the years and very carefully constructed and all this kind of stuff and when the next guy became the master he burned the book and the guy was saying well what are you doing and then the answer was what are you saying (laughs) you know so it's like Mm -hmm. what you've just said really you know it's it's at some point you have to be non-attached to your teachings and or your yeah Mm. your past you know um that's interesting not be clinging on to it so Yeah, I think you're right there. I think, well, the Dalai Lama's right. But at some Mm -hmm. point, that must be. It might become a barrier to your advancement.
0: I don't know. There was another story about a a, a monk. uh, Again, like you said, I don't know exactly where I heard this. It might have been an Alan Watts uh, lecture. But anyway, um, it was a, a, a monk that was radiating that uh you know had had this glow about him that you know it was like the sun shining through him and another monk comes up and uh they're talking hmm. so the monk that's not the monk that's not glowing hears a sudden noise and is startled and yeah. and you know looks looks and flinches and the one that's glowing says ah i see it is still with you meaning uh you know this I don't know what he, he was making some kind of condescending insult, you know, like, uh, oh, you're still, you're still frightened by noises, you know. And so, but then, so then the glowing monk went to go to the washroom or something. And then, uh, and then so what the other monk did was he wrote the Chinese character for the name of Buddha on the stone where he was sitting, where the, the glowing monk was sitting. And when he returned to sit on his seat, He stopped and he was stunned because he didn't want to sit on the name of the Lord Buddha. And then so the the other monk said, ah, I see it's still with you. (laughs) And and the glowing monk realized his mistake and he stopped glowing, which was when he attained his satori. So that's a very interesting story on a number of levels. Like that, that glowing doesn't mean you're there maybe it means you're almost there that you actually stop growing when you get there.
1: You had to let go of the glow, huh? (laughs) 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 There's a book that I just started reading that it's it's really a good book. It's called maybe you guys have heard of it because it's currently a bestseller. It's called uh, The Immortality Key.
0: I haven't heard that one. Oh, no, I haven't.
1: Ah, well, it would be worth looking into. It, it has a lot to do with mm. the history of the use of psychedelics in the mystery schools around the Mediterranean in early oh, Christianity okay. and up into our time. And in the introduction, the the author. It's very well written. The author refers to the, and he's he's not, a, you know, I think he was a Catholic at one time, but he's not into any of that now. He refers to the Eucharist as a placebo. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I can see that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, because I mean, that makes a lot of sense, actually, is if somebody doesn't, doesn't believe in it. And they're just kind of there because they're, there's whoever is, you know, like they they just go through the motions. And okay, yeah, oh, it it wasn't a very good cracker, you know, uh, the singing was nice, you know, whatever. Um, Then they're, they're not going to get anything out of it. But the person who Really, it's you get out of it what you put into it. It's it's like a like yeah. a ritual or or yeah, anything the, like that.
1: If the person has faith and humility; those two things make us receptive yeah. to whatever grace is there. Yeah, but if someone isn't sincere or they don't really have faith or humility, then they they blocked the capacity for the grace to flow
0: you know the one thing what it all comes down to one big problem there is the 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 line there that no one comes unto the father except by me i mean that's where that's where it all gets that's that's where you know because there's that's it's like all fine and dandy to to g- go through the the mass with your whole heart and to receive a k- kind of a, an awakening of your of your true self in a sense when you when you eat the host and drink the wine and to build the community that way it's all very beautiful. Were it not for the literal interpretation of that line, and um,
1: yeah, I mean that's a very important point. And yeah. I've thought about that quite a bit. And, you know, the question is, what which me is Jesus referring to?
0: You right. Know, sometimes
1: he's speaking as a human being. Sometimes he's speaking as God. Yeah. You know, so in the Gospels, we have yeah. to always examine what position is he speaking from? You know, like mm-hmm. there's one place where where somebody gets down on their knees and says, Oh master, you're so wonderful, and you know, is really showing a lot of faith in him, and Jesus rebukes him and says, Don't call me that. The only one that's worthy of that is the Father. Mm-hmm. So there he's speaking as a human being. Mm-hmm. But when he says, Nobody comes to the Father except through me. I take it to mean he's speaking as the universal Christ, not as an ego, mm. or as a human ego right. in Jesus, but he's speaking as the principle that he's incarnating and embodying, which is in all of us.
0: Yeah, yeah. It always makes me think of Willem Defoe playing the role of of Jesus in The Last Temptation of Christ. When I say God, when I say I, I mean God. <laughs> that was the moment that upset <laughs> um, yeah. But it, I mean to, like, I mean, yeah, I, I, I also have struggled with and thought about. There is no, no one comes under the Father except by me. Thinking, well, you know, He is the way. I am the way, the truth, and the life no one comes unto the father except by me that's the whole quote so no one comes unto the father except by the way the truth and the life um, but he's identifying it as himself which narrows everything down and i i mean i'm suspicious that maybe that line was added by you know er, early roman uh you know uh, constantinian types you know but i mean maybe maybe not but uh but but it, it's, it's, it's but i it, I mean when, when we're saying well what 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 I does he mean? Does he mean I or does he mean I? It sounds a little like Bill Clinton saying it depends on what your definition of is is. <laughs> wow. When he was accused of being inappropriate, you know. Like Molecular is I mean, so so I, like I,
1: I look upon Jesus as the incarnation of universal love. Yeah, and sometimes he's right. speaking as that. Other yeah. Other times he's speaking as the human being Jesus, mm. but there's no, there's no separating between those two in the Gospels. So the reader has to. Right discern that and it leaves the door wide open for literal interpretations that fundamentalists do where they they take that statement and say, well, what Jesus is saying here is unless you become a believing Christian, there's yeah. no way you can get to the Father. If it,
0: if it hadn't been for that interpretation, though, they're probably never really would have been a church certainly not one that uh that that took over you know a quarter of the world um because if 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 you know the, the 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 apostles had come i have good news oh what's your news there's no way unto the father except through the way the truth and the life well what do you mean you know like oh whatever you're doing is fine or what he's doing is okay. Okay, well, thanks. You know, here's a sandwich. Go on your way. There never would have been Christianity, you know.
1: Now, well, this book, uh, The Immortality Key, goes into a lot of this stuff. Oh, wow. the, the person that wrote it is, is uh, he spent 12 years of research, and before he did the research, he learned Sanskrit, he learned Greek, and he learned Latin. And so he went, he traveled and read you know, all the sources he could. Uh, I'm just in this first chapter of the book right now. But the introduction <clears throat> itself, which is about 21 pages, is, is just loaded with stuff. I think, wow. I think you'd love reading it.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I'll check that out. Yeah,
2: mm. definitely. Have you been yeah. watching there's a dramatization of Jesus' life called The Chosen? I don't know if you've seen any of that, but
1: it's I quite seen. What
2: well. Do you we think add, of? I quite like it because it gives you a kind of idea of how it might have been there. You know, how people were, how they behaved, what the Romans were like, what the, the interactions would have been on a human level. So I found it quite interesting to read because it's not preachy you know it doesn't try and force a particular view it just it's it's like a I don't know like a the game of thrones or something <laughs> it's like a series <laughs> not quite like interesting that. it's it's I just oh, quite like it. They've
1: they've it. It somewhere.
2: you can watch it for free on their website i think it's um you just google the chosen and you should find uh, like as a link to their website and you can watch for free because oh, it's all crowd, it's all crowd funded, so it's not you know they don't want to charge for it
1: that's wonderful How yeah nice.
2: hmm. yeah it's pretty good I mean it's I got
1: emails about it but I was working on a manuscript and hmm. I get really absorbed when I'm writing something and I just everything else kind of goes by the wayside
2: yeah yeah right
1: yeah I rewrote the uh spiritual autobiography of my first years, so which Ed oh good, me. oh, I have it
2: right here yeah, oh wow, is that available on Amazon or anything It'd be good to
1: well, no not uh yet okay actually the uh-huh. yeah, that's it the <laughs> manuscript uh, the new version of it. Is with a publisher in London called Bloomsbury.
2: Oh yeah, I know that one.
1: Wow. Yeah, they're a, they're a pretty good sized publisher. Yeah. Blooms Bloomsbury Continuum. They publish Thomas Keating's books. Right. Mm. And the uh, this guy named uh, Robin, who's the the publisher there. He asked. Somebody from Contemplative Outreach, if she had any more books for him. And uh, so through that, I've been able to get it to him. And he's kind of, through another person, actually, I sent it to her and she sent it to him in electronic form. So he's should be reading it now or getting ready to. I'm excited to see what may come of this.
0: Sounds ridiculous. Nice. Yeah. The mandala of love. Is that still the title?
1: No, uh the title is Crawling to God Discovering the Mandala of Pure Love.
0: Okay. Oh, nice. Wow. Hmm. Very
2: nice. So when's that coming out? Will that be well soon? he
1: hasn't accepted it yet? I had to fill out a, a contract proposal and answer a bunch of questions. And I've done that. And this woman, Kate, who's been interacting with him, she's real busy right now with the Department of World Religions in Chicago. But once oh, she gets done with that... Oh, yeah. I think, I think she'll send him the... Uh, Proposal. The contract proposal form I sent her answers to the questions, but she has sent in the manuscript already.
0: Yeah, David Wright, I think, is his name. Um, The guy that I interviewed with uh, Koal a couple years ago. Um, He's going to that 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 conference in uh, Chicago. So yeah, that that sounds very interesting.
1: Starting uh, starting this coming week, she's going on oh, okay. Wednesday. Anyway. She's lives in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> yeah,
0: I wonder if my old priest is going. He uh, he was always the the director of ecumenical affairs in the Los Angeles diocese, uh, Father Alexei. Oh, well, that would be <laughs> a
1: good a good thing for him to attend. Yeah, I mentioned yeah. To her an email that. At the first Parliament of World Religions, Swami Vivekananda made quite a splash there. Mm. He was like the chief disciple of Ramakrishna, Mm. who revitalized Hinduism towards the latter part of the 19th century.
2: Mm. What do you make of Sadhguru?
1: I beg your pardon?
2: Just wondered what you make of Sadhguru, if you've seen much of his teaching. He's doing a lot of um, Shiva-based teachings online and trying to make it accessible to the West. Not quite. I mean, I it's,
1: uh, a Sadhguru is a kind of like a description of a guru who's perfect. Oh. But if someone took that as their name, yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know the person. Yeah.
0: Yeah, he's, oh, yes. he's a famous, he's pretty famous. Uh, Will Smith, after he punched uh, uh, Chris Rock, he got on a oh, plane yeah. and went went to hang out with Sadhguru and take selfies for Instagram, I, you know, uh, I didn't, and, I didn't know. And, and, you know, help, help me, uh, you know, get over my inner rage, you know, this kind of thing. So he's sort of that kind, that level of sort of the celebrity a celebrity guru um uh-huh. he has he has a couple of very big grand setters there's uh you know they, they i mean one or two like he 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 built a, a temple in the middle of like an elephant migrating uh path you know there's some people have like certain things that they criticize about him but uh i don't yeah. know he seems he seems i don't i mean i don't think that he's I mean, if it, it, my my I, I I trust Priel when she says that he's not an enlightened master. Um, oh, uh, you know he, well, he's, he's probably he's, one of
1: those people that's in one of the lower triads on the tree of life, who each right. keeper in that sphere, right. and they overestimate yeah. you know his actual status because he doesn't have the map of the tree. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but he's buddies with kind of the people that are running India right now. And and uh so so I don't know. I think I think he's harmless. Um he he's he he uh openly criticizes Islam, which some people either say is a bad thing or is an honest thing or whatever, you know, depending on how people feel about that. Um and so yeah,
1: that's. Well, he seems you know, I would say fine. It on which, which version of Islam he's criticizing. Right. That's true. Some of it certainly deserves criticism. Right. Yeah. You know, people like the Taliban or whatever, they're totally fanatics that are off the deep end mm-hmm. and full of hate and uh, claiming to be doing God's work, suppressing women and all this right. horrible stuff but uh, the mystics like the Sufis Mm, they're the ones I think that we could connect to
2: yeah yeah oh yeah definitely yeah yeah absolutely people
1: like you know Rumi and Hafiz Mm. great uh, poets there's a a little
0: fun story I I hope uh, that the people who've heard this story before on the podcast don't mind me telling it again but there was a time that uh, when I was in Nepal, and I met, first, I, I was in it staying at a hostel, my first time staying in a hostel, and I, I really had to go to the bathroom, and of course, there's one shared bathroom, so I, I got up out of my bed and went into the hall, and I saw somebody kneeling and, like, bowing in front of the restroom, <laughs> so I thought that I was now I'm in line this guy obviously really has to go to the bathroom because he's just really <laughs> he hoping that whoever's him. in there and so so then I I finally I I think me standing there kind of watching him like you know distracted and finally he's he and I started talking and um and then and then uh, eventually I realized you know gosh oh how long is this person going to be in the bathroom and he's like oh i don't think anybody's in there and i was like what and i opened it and then it, oh oh you were praying oh how stupid of me you know because it was 5 a.m or whatever and um then he and i started talking and i mentioned the sufis and he's like you know the sufis and i was like oh yeah i love rumi hafiz and he's like you know hafiz and i said the great religions of the world are sinking ships the poets are the lifeboats. That is good for business, isn't it, Hafiz? And he took off his hat and gave it to me. I have it right here. Wow! How cool! This this. Oh, look at that! Wow! So, yeah, yeah. So that that was my little contact that I made uh, across the uh, the aisle, if you will. <laughs> I don't think he was a Sufi, but he's he loves the Sufis. You know, his main focus is he, he was in Nepal uh mm-hmm. because he, he wants to uh be a trekking guide in Malaysia, but he's very devout. Uh, so he's he's not like uh aspiring imam or anything, but uh, but yeah, he likes Sufi poetry. <laughs> yeah, that's
2: pretty it's pretty sort awesome. of like
0: sort of like punk rock. It's like uh, Muslim uh you know uh a little bit i mean at the time it was counterculture now it's interesting because there's so many uh sufi uh communities in parts of india that became established so long ago that they kind of gradually became institutionalized and dogmatic a little bit um so there was a sufi that i met in that that i i asked if he would teach me and he he said okay first never never pee standing up and i was like okay you know and he's, he's like you cannot pee standing up your the the pee splashes up on your pants and you can't worship Allah with pee on your pants and I'm like all right and then he's like never touch a woman's privates with your tongue and I'm like okay I guess I can't be a Sufi then you know like uh, never mind you know uh but he taught me he taught me uh a few songs and uh so that was, but he was like, you cannot sing these songs if you're going to touch a woman with your tongue. I'm like, okay, all right. Uh, I mean, uh, whatever, dude. You know, like I, I, I so I, <laughs> that was my my one day on the Sufi path was, uh, well, you know, with a master teach me. Okay, never mind. You know, I, t- but he gave me the name Reeb Hasni because his, his name that was given to him was Hasni. Um, so it related to Hussein so i one of the uh i the early Shivites, if i'm not mistaken he was on this the Shivite the, Shibite, the Shibite side not the sunni side of the old split he, Oh, uh, the, shia, the shia side he, yeah. he was an early martyr uh so, husni or hussein was an early martyr who stood up to uh you know a hundred guys that were that were on the <laughs> other side of that conflict and got himself killed that way and uh, so Mm-hmm. Huh. Cool. It, when i when i when i was first staying in india MP was at work and uh so i ordered some food with swiggy which is like i don't know uber eats and uh it says uh your your food will be delivered shortly by saddam hussein <laughs>
1: like,
0: <what>? oh really <laughs> and then this very, very nice young boy, you know, young Muslim boy, you know, shows up at the door. He's like very friendly and he gives me my food. I'm like, thank you. I'm like, okay, that's Saddam Hussein. <laughs> that's, a, that's a name you wouldn't find uh, people naming their kid in uh, in the U.S. as much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, not in the U.K. either. <laughs> yeah. But we did have, uh, you know, a president with uh, Hussein as his middle name. So that's interesting. That's true.
2: Mm
0: What one of those pendulum swings when everything became very anti-islam after 9 11 and then by 2008 we're trying to make up for how anti-islamic we had become and then by 2016 trying to make up for how open-minded we had become and so uh, i I just i bailed at that point i'm like bye guys i'm gonna live in india you know yes (laughs) fair (laughs) enough Can't, can't handle this pendulum swinging anymore you know no, it sounds like a good name. Yeah. Hmm.
2: Are you like an Indian citizen now? Do you have like
0: uh, no? Uh in order well, I have uh my OCI. Uh, it's it's in the other room. Um it looks like a passport. It says um uh, citizen of India, but it says overseas citizen of India. So that's oh. uh that's a cat that's a category that's usually for because india doesn't allow dual citizenship um if you're a citizen of india then you're not a citizen anywhere else so if you want to hold on to your so when an indian moves to canada or america or australia or wherever france england anywhere um if they want if they become a citizen of that other country then they're they're uh lowered to, from from full citizen of India, they become an OCI, which means overseas citizen of India, which means that citizen of India is overseas. And Um, so then, you know, well, what about when a foreigner comes to India and wants to marry an Indian? Well, they say, we'll put them in that category too. So it's like, uh, okay, so I'm not overseas, but but I'm an overseas citizen of India in the same category as the folks that move overseas, if that makes sense. So so in another, I think, uh, I forget how many years, in five years, if I want to, if I, I, I can renounce my American citizenship and become a full Indian citizen, but I, I don't plan on doing that. Um, so, really?
2: Oh, okay.
0: You know, I'm, I'm enjoying, so still enjoying some of the perks of my American citizenship.
2: Whatnot. <laughs> oh, it must be so nice to live there, though. Wow. Really cool. So you're you're in Australia,
0: but you're uh there as a UK citizen?
2: I'm an overseas. <laughs> no, um, you're on a work visa? <laughs> I'm on a work visa, yeah. So I've, oh, I've okay, okay. in Australia. So
0: but nice. yeah, it's
2: been quite good, you know, setting up a golden dawn group and um getting all that going and it's um it's a great country. It's really, really great, you know, lovely weather, people are more relaxed, so um yeah really enjoying the experience and especially in Sydney which is where Um, I am
0: uh, asked me if I you know where my temple was and I was like I don't have a temple and he's like well you teach dawn ceremonial magic and you live in India right and I'm like no but yes (laughs) I'm like I I'm retired I don't I don't I'm not a teacher anymore but I do live in India and then I referred him to this podcast so he might be watching rishikesh oh, okay. 109 or 1901 um and uh so yeah he's he he found me through rc's podcast magic without fears um oh, yeah. and uh so i don't know i don't know if i guess australia is a little closer than uh america or, or uk i don't know if do you do astral initiation or um anything it's like possible that? It's a possibility, yeah, okay, sure,
2: yeah, um, it depends what what he wants to do, or you could also do the same with the American group, so um right, that's
0: true, that's true, but so far, no golden Dawn temple in India unless I want to build it.
2: <laughs> oh, it would be cool to do it one day. I'd love to go. To <laughs> I don't know if they'd let me in, you know, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh they'd let you in yeah no there's there's no when when the british were leaving they were like um you know divide and conquer they're like if we if we get them fighting each other then they'll forget that they were fighting us and and it worked unfortunately so there's there's no there's no bad blood against the british really not much not much
2: i wonder how long i could stay there on my
0: tourist visa i guess well the way it works you can get a 10-year visa, but you have to leave every six months, which just means you have to, you go to Sri Lanka and come back, or you go to Nepal and come back. Um, so okay. there's people who, there's people who basically live here, but they're on the tourist visa. But of course, that, that was what I was doing. And we had our, we had our wedding, but the, the temple was saying, well, he's not Hindu. So we'll do the ceremony because we know you, you know, that like her, she had connections with the temple. So we did a full proper Hindu wedding. And then we went to uh, a Catholic church and had them bless us. And we did our ring exchange in front of the altar, but we hadn't, we weren't legally married yet. And then COVID hit. And then India was like, okay, foreigners, you, you can go home now. And then the foreigners were saying, "Everybody's dying at home here. There's no cases of COVID. Can we stay?" So they said, "Okay, you can stay." So they started renewing everybody's tourist visa. But my whole thing of like leaving to Nepal and coming back was no longer an option. So then it became urgent for us to get legally married, and that was when I just rapidly did my Hindu conversion and uh, and then oh, yeah. uh, got 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 married in a little Hindu temple in uh, Delhi. There. And did the paperwork and then then we were legally married. So our wedding, our our like formal wedding with family and everything present was in February of 2019. But but our legal wedding was I think in June of 2020. How so, do you
2: convert to Hinduism then? Is that easy or is that you sign
0: a piece of paper saying I renounce uh Christ? No, let's see. I, I have it in here somewhere. Um that's all you do. Yeah. Um, they, they have these little, these little temples that are like, you know, a little hole in the wall, you know, like they, like, uh, a, a business, uh, uh, real estate, right. you know what I mean? Like a bit, uh, yes. like, a where you might find, a a liquor store, but they don't have liquor stores really in Delhi, very few and far between. And there's like, a it's, it's not, it's frowned upon in most of India. We're in Goa, so it's a little bit of a different culture. There's a liquor store every two feet. But uh so yeah, so they they have a, a table with a printer, and there's a guy sitting at the table with the printer in a folding chair, and then there's a Brahmin with a fire and you know, like a bunch of stuff over here. And so you come in, you fill out some paperwork, you go the Brahmin does some stuff, he marks you, and then you go back and then they print something out and hand it to you, and then you go to the government offices. And so it's all very bare bones, but you know, every everything that's required is Done, and it's by a legitimate Brahmin and everything. And so, so they so they ask you, you know, do you? So you have studied the Vedas, and you, uh, you, you want to pursue this as your religious path, and you no longer uh, consider yourself what you were before, whether it be Muslim or Christian. You say yes, and they say, okay, sign here, stamp. Okay, you're a Hindu. You know, according to the law and uh but they there's also there's an act that was put in effect that allows hindus to marry non-hindus but it's kind of like a little bit more complicated so if somebody really was like i will not say that i renounce allah or 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 jesus then okay all right there's a procedure for that you know you you can do this and that and have a court marriage and all this um but we just were like Let's get it done. So we got it all done in one day by me saying, okay, I swear that I am no longer Christian. I'm now Hindu. Let's get married. You know, okay, done. Wow, amazing. Yeah.
1: And yeah, man, I had for a question, um, yeah. My understanding is that the, uh, the Hindus consider Jesus to be one of the avatars of Vishnu.
0: Not any of the Hindus I've met in India, um, that's more of like a...
1: Buddha, a Buddha. they also consider Buddha one of the avatars of Vishnu.
0: Right. I've heard that, uh, I mean, those ideas may exist somewhere in India, um, but I mean, those ideas, of course, catch on and become more more popular ideas in places like UK and US, and you know, oh, especially no. <laughs> in new, new new age communities and whatnot. But I I like that idea, and that's kind of what I what I what I have in mind is that my Hinduism includes Yeshua, and my Hinduism includes Sufism, and uh, and and Buddhism as. Uh, you know, and, and Vajrayana Buddhism includes a whole lot of Hinduism, and um, I mean, I think that it's it's really interesting having, a, are you familiar with Nalanda University?
1: Nalanda?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, well, yeah, historically, that was a university. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 university that's
1: university. the one. Yeah, yeah we got wiped out when the Muslims invaded.
0: Right. Um, there was a particular Muslim warlord. Um, I forget his name. In the 1100s, I think it was. He came and destroyed it. There seems to have been like a, a, a more contention with Buddhism than with Hinduism. Like when when the the that you know those those particular Muslims. Really didn't like the Buddhists. I don't know. I mean, it, like well, they, there was one of some the kind of
1: Buddhism. God, wiped doubt was that? Basically, Buddhism was centrally located in Nalanda and some other big learning mm. centers, whereas mm. Hinduism was spread throughout the whole country. Oh right. Oh so okay. Okay. Had to kill off the entire population. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I don't know if you can see this was uh sort of from the ruins. This is from Nalanda the, the, the ruins of Nalanda University. Um wow. I don't know why I brought that up. That somehow fit into what we were talking about, but I don't remember why or how.
1: <laughs> Sorry you know, about that. <laughs> Marpa, the great translator from Tibet, Marpa. Oh yeah. He went to India to get the Vajrayana teachings.
0: And all right. the teachings
1: of Buddhism. And he took all this gold dust with him to pay for it. And one oh, of wow. his teachers just took it and threw it up in the air and said, what need do I have of this? But anyway, uh, uh, all right. he had a complete set of the entire canon of the sacred scriptures of Buddhism of all three schools, and he took them to Tibet Right before mm. the Muslims invaded and wiped it out. And oh, can... Naropa. No, Marpa. Marpa. Okay, learned. okay. He learned from Naropa. Naropa was one of his. Oh, okay.
0: O- okay, okay. Yeah, I, I, uh, I heard a story about that. That uh, Naropa was like the top. He was the valedictorian of his generation you know he was the like, top of the class you know had mastered everything nobody could could hold a candle to his knowledge at nalanda university and then he he was outside one day and he met a woman and she says you may know a lot in those walls but you know nothing about real life and that like that cut him to the core <laughs> and uh and so he he made the decision finally to leave nalanda university and um and i guess that was when he went with uh marpa and went to tibet so so maybe you know that oh, woman on marpa the street went, that told him that
1: marpa went from tibet to india
0: right so this was he went from uh naropa went from india to tibet um oh. he he was he was the the top of the class at Nalanda, but yeah, yeah. some woman told him a woman you know wh- whose name we don't know told him uh, you know you don't know anything about real life you just know a lot of book knowledge and so then that inspired him to leave and go to Tibet so uh-huh. we might we might owe the survival of Vajrayana Buddhism to that woman <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that told him that <laughs> it's very interesting
2: amazing story wow
0: yeah what a tragedy though about that university because walking around it's huge it's like you know like walking around any university no, like the
1: burning the library in uh. alexandria mm,
0: yeah oh yeah, oh, yeah.
1: Egypt. that's Egypt. So true all the knowledge of the ancient world was supposedly concentrated there yeah and it just destroyed the whole darn thing
0: total tragedy there's a yeah there's a beautiful movie called on uh where there's it's about the uh chinese monk in the 600s that goes on a pilgrimage to nalanda and uh he ends up in the end bringing back 630 mahayana texts and uh sort Ooh. of beginning the mahayana movement i mean the big the big not revival but the i forget the word they use but the but this one monk that made that pilgrimage and then came back brought all these texts to be translated in into chinese, and then that's another place where uh where so many of those texts we wouldn't have if it if it hadn't been for that monk you know going in and bringing them to uh to china and uh and I think it was his writings that led uh some people in the nineteenth century to finding nalanda university because they because he he uh, outlined his uh his journey in detail, and I think journey to the to the west uh is is like a a, a fictionalized mythologized version of, of of the story of that monk
2: oh <laughs> huh. fascinating stuff wow yeah, yeah <laughs> yeah, it must be great to visit all these places in India and just you know see that history and um it's such an ancient country, isn't it?
0: yeah it that blew my mind you know just how old things are like something being 800 years old is like oh only 800 years old you <laughs> know and uh i mean here in goa they we they, they we've got um churches that were built in the 1500s that wow you know are as old as many of the churches in europe but not nearly as old as You know a lot of the the ancient things in in india so and then because with the portuguese the the worst the worst of the inquisition in the world happened here in goa so they 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 wiped out hinduism in goa um and then and then later and burned down they they burned down um ancient thomas churches because they didn't recognize that they were christian you know I mean back then they they didn't even think of Greek orthodox as proper christian because they weren't papists you know but um so yeah so so in in the 1960s um india called up portugal and said hey we're going to just take goa is that cool and portugal portugal was like didn't answer her you know i mean i'm that's not exactly how it went but so they just rolled in and took it and portugal went to nato and said hey you remember how when when a non when one of some someone who's not us takes land tries to take land or conquer one of us who is us then we're all gonna gang up on them right well uh india just took goa from us and everybody was like
1: huh. all
0: right." (laughs) right so 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 uh so then they everybody was like Whatever, man. You know, and so Goa is now part of India. And so then they started building Hindu temples again. Wow. So in Goa, there's there's old Christian churches and new Hindu temples.
1: <laughs> yes. Exactly India. Is Goa located?
0: It's on the west coast. Um, it's south of Maharashtra and north of uh Here's my my ignorance, you know uh, uh, American, I don't, know. I don't even know the u s. states, yeah, 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 so it's down it's south of Maharashtra. It's a relatively small state tucked between i want to say karnataka and uh and and Maharashtra. um so it's tropical it's 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 pretty ideal because the the bulk of the big cyclones and storms hits the east coast, and so by the time it gets to the west coast there they aren't as bad. And the tidal waves are north of here. So, uh, the The fault line, the big fault line, is up by Pakistan. So, so when uh, you know, every few hundred years, when there's a tidal wave, it hits Maharashtra, but it doesn't hit Goa. And you know, when a when a big cyclone comes, it hits the east coast, but it doesn't hit Goa. So it's really an ideal spot, um, you know, for for people who like tropical, who don't mind an excess of insects, you know. And uh, there's no winter. <laughs> I mean, you know. It doesn't get cold. That was a great place to live. Yeah. There's a rainy period. It gets a bit warm, uh, you know, uh, uh, but it doesn't get, like, hot. In in Delhi, it'll get freezing cold in at, at night in wintertime, and then it'll get up to 48 or 120-something in the summertime. But in Goa, it's it gets hot and humid, but it doesn't get higher than, you know, like 90, you know, um, or ninety nine, maybe ninety five. It's like yeah, as I'm hot as it gets. Like yeah, a bit, a bit, but tropical. <laughs> no, West coast, but fun. and it's got all the it's it's got the old Portuguese thing instead of the old Spanish thing. So so it's it is very it, in a lot of ways. It's like a familiar alternate dimension that I oh. that I you know walked into where where um, it's still the same old missions, but but instead of desert, it's tropical. <laughs> and I'm the minority. <laughs>
2: oh, yeah. Oh, well, guys, I'm going to have to um, get off the, the now, video.
1: Now, okay.
2: Oh, right now it's 3.30 um, p.m. So Okay. Uh,
1: yeah. CSV,
0: BBB, and um, nice <laughs> you,
2: whatever yeah. that
0: means, and uh, so yeah, you've got your Sunday stuff coming up, so uh, I assume.
2: Oh well, no, it's just some other stuff here I'm doing locally. Oh, okay, so, okay, okay. So yeah. Um well, to so, nice so,
1: meet you,
2: John. Nice to meet you too, Kes. Yeah, yeah. Enjoyed the chat, and hopefully, maybe we can do a part two sometime. Yeah. Oh
1: yeah. Good.
0: Yeah. yeah. And I look forward to seeing your book uh, out on the bookshelves.
1: I sure uh, happens to us.
0: Yeah, me too. And uh, uh I I don't know if you saw Amitabha has been here with us. I thought it would be appropriate to uh to wear oh, wear up. this, to wear this and have him yeah, present. Yeah. yeah,
1: I'm a big yeah. fan of Amitabha.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'm still learning. I uh I don't know if you've seen my Buddhist books podcast. I've been reading Tipitaka, but then occasionally Life and Liberation of uh Padma Sambhava. So I read oh, one no, canto God. every ten episodes of Tipitaka. I read one one canto of of lib- Liberation of Padma Sambhava. Okay, bye, well. have
2: okay, bye, bye Freder. Uh, I talk soon. Bye, bye, bye Cass.
1: Bye bye. <laughs>
0: So and then uh and then but occasionally I do a special episode like yesterday I read uh from a Mahayana scripture, Suryangama Sutra, warnings against uh subtle demonic states that come up in meditation and uh false gurus and things like that. It's very interesting.
1: Rama Govinda likes that sutra a lot.
0: Suryangama? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, cool, interesting. Yeah, I knew it had been translated into Tibetan, but possibly it was of Chinese origin, but who can say? No one really knows for sure.
1: (laughs) Yeah, he used to write, he wrote about it a bit. I got the impression that he, it was a top on, you know, it was high on his list of good sutras to study.
0: Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I like that one and uh and dogen shobo genzo is one of my favorites uh the uh the the man who brought chan over to japan and called it zen <laughs> he gave a lot of lectures and uh so they, the scribes put it together into these four volumes of uh, very yeah. interesting commentaries on the scriptures and and it's stories about his time in china and you know a lot of things Forming the foundation for Japanese Zen.
1: <laughs> That's interesting how Buddhism branched out, spread you know in different directions.
0: Yeah.
1: are on different forms.
0: Yeah, a bit, a bit. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming on here again. I think this is your eighth or ninth time on the Esoteric Nerd.
1: <laughs> oh my be, I haven't counted. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I enjoy, I always enjoy talking with you. Yeah,
0: likewise.
1: <laughs> so That's I don't know. Nice Jake, picture of you. Oh, this nice picture of you and your wife you had on the screen when we were first starting and you were having some trouble with your video.
0: Oh, yeah? Oh, I forget which picture that is. Is Am I wearing yellow and she has very long hair?
1: Yeah, I think so. It, was, it looked yeah. like it was shortly after you were married.
0: Right, right. <laughs> a while ago. Yeah, she's she's in the next room. She she was giving me a lot of ideas right before coming on here. and uh, But then she, she was saying, you know, you can say that I said this, but don't call me in there to talk on the screen. Oh. <laughs> uh-huh. So she's just in there waiting for me to finish.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, sounds like things are going real well for you over there, Edward. Yeah. Yeah.
0: They're good. Taking it easy for the most part and uh, a few passion projects and uh, yeah, it's been good.
1: Okay. Well, I guess we'll, we'll sign off for now.
0: Yeah, but this was good, uh, good, good talking and uh good, good subject. I'm glad you got to meet John. A few characters, friends of mine you've met so far and, uh, hopefully we'll do this again uh, sometime in the near future
1: for sure okay well, you take care and i keep i think about you a lot try to send you some good vibes
0: yeah likewise
1: <laughs> okay all namaste. right namaste
0: namaste talk soon uh- Thank you, Kess Fry, for being our guest today on the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. And thank you, John Frater Mercurio, for uh, for being my co-host for today. And uh, this is something we're going to continue. I know that there are at least five, there's at least several people out there who um who work with a Vajrayana or Zen or or a Hindu yogic or otherwise um, kind of paradigm in conjunction with Golden Dawn. And now the specific focus is on the higher grades of the Golden Dawn, where you you get strapped to a cross and all that, where it becomes um, much more specifically Christian mysteries and, uh, and the question of if someone's faith is Buddhist or Hindu. Now, a person would say, well, no, Buddhism is not a faith, it's a philosophy. You can approach it that way. Um, but there's a lot of folks, if you visit Bhutan or northeastern India um, or, you know, Taiwan or in Mahayana, Vajrayana, a lot of forms of Buddhism that are very much a religion and people are raised in it and, Consider it their faith, and obviously, a lot of folks, especially in India and surrounding areas, that uh, that are born and raised Hindu. So the question is, um, can someone go all the way through the Golden Dawn grades and really fully be initiated into the second order and work those mysteries while while being Hindu or Buddhist? And uh, our you know bias is to say that <clears throat> well yes you can but um i think it would be intellectually irresponsible to just kind of say well yes you know mi casa tu casa everything's one so sure it all fits together just fine don't worry about it um so i think it's a it, it's a conversation to be had and uh, there's probably multiple perspectives and i would like to hear yours so, if you'd like, you can comment below or uh, write to me at vh.fratter.bt at gmail.com, especially if you would be willing or interested in sharing your thoughts in an upcoming episode with uh, Fratter Mercurio and myself. Special thanks to Susumu Ueda and his father and the other monks at Jofukuin in on Mount Koyasan for the music you're hearing right now. Special thanks to Camille and Kennerly for the harp transition into and out of the interview. And special thanks to you, the esoteric nerd, listening to this podcast. Go forth in love, truth, and knowledge. Until next time.